Hi, this is Nandika from Bima Region 10 Youth Preparedness Council. This episode is about earthquake preparedness on both national and local levels. Often people are unsure about how to effectively prepare for and stay safe during a disaster. So today I'm here with um, FEMA Earthquake Program Specialist, Ms. Megan Wise, who will be sharing some helpful tips and strategies and unique experiences about her perspective in leading national FEMA earthquake initiatives. I'm super excited to have you, Ms. Wise. Welcome and thank you so much for being on my podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here and very honored to be on your podcast. Thank you. Um, so I was first just wondering if you could provide a brief overview of your role at FEMA as an earthquake program specialist in a national earthquake hazard uh, reduction of grant programs. Absolutely. So I have been with FEMA for about five years now. Uh, 2024 will be my ninth year as a member mm-hmm. of the federal government. And uh, I started my service at FEMA with the fire grants program, actually. I transitioned to my new role as an earthquake program specialist in the earthquake and wind programs branch in November, 2022. So my role as an earthquake program specialist at FEMA is to assist states and territories with preparing for and mitigating against the risks of earthquakes. And to accomplish this, I work and I'm very lucky to work with such an outstanding team at FEMA, of uh, both colleagues in the field and all of our 10 regions, and also uh, where I'm located, which is at FEMA headquarters in Washington, D.C. Um, so I do work with all 10 regions, but uh, being in D.C., my focus is on the national delivery of FEMA's earthquake preparedness programs. And I, I do this in a few different ways. So. Uh, I oversee and manage the National Earthquake Hazard Reduction Program, or NEHRP, the grant portfolio. Uh, I prepare educational materials for national distribution. I work with other federal, state, and local partners to increase earthquake safety and awareness across the country. And I coordinate, of course, with all of our 10 regions, but then also with our Office of External Affairs, communications teams, and system developers for various platforms. And lastly, I and all of my colleagues assist external stakeholders with earthquake preparedness. Yeah, that's really cool that you're able to like um, communicate in many different levels and like a national level. And more specific to that, like how do national earthquake preparedness programs differ from community-based and regional earthquake preparedness programs in your opinion? This is a great question, Nandika. So the National Earthquake Hazards Reduction Program, or NEHRP, was first enacted into law under the Earthquake Hazard Reduction Act of 1977. And since NEHRP's creation, it has become the federal government's long-term nationwide program to reduce risks to life and property in the U.S. that result from earthquakes. So on a national level, Earthquake Preparedness Program programming encompasses, of course, all of the United States. And these programs are designed to address the broad spectrum of earthquake risks, how those risks affect the communities across the country, and how we can better prepare for those risks. So these programs involve extensive communication campaigns. Uh, We do a lot of large national uh, education programs and really awesome large-scale outreach initiatives. For example, 
I'm not sure if you participated this year, but if not, I'm going to get you involved for next year. So one of our largest national programs is called the Great Shakeout Earthquake Drill, and it's coordinated by the Southern California Earthquake Center. So Great Shakeout is an annual earthquake safety event in which participants practice the drop cover hold on technique. And that this event has been a successful way to increase awareness of earthquake safety and help communities prepare for and mitigate against earthquake risks. So in fact, and this is, I am so happy about this number, uh, more than 56 million people worldwide participated oh. in this year's Great Shakeout Earthquake Drill that occurred on October 19th. So if you didn't participate this year, any of your listeners didn't, next year is the year. So we definitely want to get everyone involved. That's really um, cool. I'm oh, sorry. If I you no, that's okay. Go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, that's really cool because I did participate in the Great Shakeout. And as you said, I didn't realize how great of an opportunity it is for like community uh, members and also nationally to participate because a lot of my um, friends and like had competitions for it. And it was like a really fun and engaging way to practice earthquake drills. So thank you so much for bringing that up. And I'll definitely participate again and try getting my peers to participate again. So yeah, did you have anything else to add? Sorry, before I cut you off, sorry. That's okay, and I do, but I, first, I think that's fantastic. I'm so glad you participated, that you had a great time, and you're going to again. I that's, That is news, to, you know, music to our ears, that we really want that news just shared far and wide, that it's an easy way to prepare for earthquakes. It, it can be fun, you can get your friends involved. Um, that's, that's wonderful to hear. So thank you for, for sharing that and for participating. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So I did want to share, um, you know, talking a little bit about ShakeOut and this, these grand, you know, large national programs, they're a little bit different, different than what we do at the regional level. Um, but we do work with those programs as well and help coordinate and fund those. And, you know, our regional programs, they encompass, you know, the earthquake risks of either one entire FEMA region or multiple states within a region. And so they also help coordinate shakeout, but then they help implement other earthquake mitigation activities um, as well. And I do want to highlight another of our partners, which is uh, CUSEC. It's the Central United States Earthquake Consortium. And they are a hub of earthquake preparedness and mitigation in a place that not a lot of people are super aware that earthquakes occur, which is in the central U.S. Uh, there are actually three active seismic zones there, uh, the Wabash Valley, East Tennessee, and New Madrid. And um, we work together with CUSEC to make sure that, you know, they receive all of the information and support that they need to help the regional level and multi-state level prepare and mitigate against earthquakes, but then also engage with us in other fun activities like ShakeOut. That's really cool. And kind of based off what you've already shared with the ShakeOut and the, the other initiatives, I was wondering if there were um, other specific initiatives or community-based projects that have been particularly successful in reducing earthquake risk. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so there's a saying that you hear often in this industry, which is earthquakes don't kill people, buildings do. And this statement refers to the fact that while we can't control earthquakes where we live or work, 
we can influence the most important factor in saving lives and reducing losses, which is building codes. So at FEMA, we have an incredible team of architects, engineers, and seismologists whose entire job is to support the development of natural hazard resistant building codes and standards. And the adoption and enforcement of up-to-date building codes play the biggest role and the most successful role of reducing property damage and loss of life in earthquake-prone areas. So, you know, by ensuring that new constructions are built to withstand seismic activities and encouraging retrofitting of existing structures, these initiatives have significantly enhanced the resilience of communities against earthquakes. And I mean, in fact, it's proven that designing buildings to meet the 2018 International Residential Code and the 2018 International Building Code led to a national a national benefit of $11 saved for every $1 invested in comparison to older generations of code. I mean, that, that is a huge return on investment. And, you know, building and construction success stories that result after disasters often start when a community has properly enforced building codes and standards. So for homeowners, homeowners, building professionals, or elected officials, it's important to realize that building codes are a minimum standard and that it's essential to build above the baseline. So ensuring that your building is up to code or beyond your area's adopted standard before a disaster strikes is one of the most important steps you can take to mitigate the damage caused by natural hazards. And uh, to give you an example of this um, is California's Earthquake Brace and Bolt Program, which is a grant program that provides eligible California homeowners of up to $3,000 towards a residential seismic retrofit. And the purpose is to help homeowners lessen the potential damage to their houses during an earthquake by bracing the crawl space when necessary and then bolting the foundation to their house's frame. So this brace and bolt program has helped thousands of California homeowners complete retrofits and safeguard them in the event of a future seismic um, episode or another you know, major earthquake. And so as far as, you know, going back to your question of, of what have been, you know, what projects have been successful in the community, it's, it's really building at code and building above code. Yeah, that's really um, interesting. Like, I did not know anything about, like, how buildings actually kill more people than earthquakes and all the other like information you've shared about that related to like the return investment and it's really interesting to hear because i didn't consider all of that when i was like um thinking about earthquake damage so thank you for sharing that and additionally i was wondering what methods or tools are used in addition to what you shared for accessing earthquake and wind hazards on a national scale and how do you determine like high risk and what other measures are taken to like mitigate these risks? Sure. Uh, so I'm gonna unpack this a little bit, and I'll, I'll first talk about how we assess earthquake hazards on a national scale. So when we look at the hazards of an earthquake, we we're utilizing a variety of of different tools and methods, and we work in partnership with a couple different federal agencies uh, to do this who are all also working on the NEHRP legislation. So 
Our partners in the federal space include the National Institute of Science and Technology, or NIST, the National Science Foundation, NSF, and the United States Geological Survey, or USGS. And so uh, we, the way we do this risk is that we work with these partners to assess the earthquake hazards through tools like geological surveys, seismic activity monitoring, advanced computational models. All of these things help us identify and analyze fault lines, historical earthquake patterns, and potential impact areas. Once we get all of that information that our partners are so good at developing, especially you know USGS and NIST, NSF, they're so research focused and so forward thinking on the science space, they give us the incredible data to then make determinations of earthquake risk by each state and territory annually. And so we use that data to, uh, in a combination with our seismic design category and an annualized earthquake loss formula, which is contained in FEMA's P366 HAZUS, estimated annualized earthquake losses, uh, to really compute which states and territories in the U.S. will be rated high or very high earthquake risks. And if they are, they then qualify for federal funding through NEHRP, which uh, we support them with. So one interesting note about the estimate, estimated annual earthquake losses is that there was a huge jump uh, between last year and this year. And the new number that came out in April was that the new uh, total estimated for earthquake losses is $14 billion at this point. So... It's a pretty scary number. <laughs> and, uh, you know, combined with the work we do with our federal agencies, and once we get this number, our goal is then, all right, how do we mitigate earthquake risks? We have these numbers, we know who's at risk. Now, what, what are we doing with that? And we put those numbers into a plan and we make a plan. So, as I've mentioned, the most important way to mitigate risks is the adoption and enforcement of up-to-date building codes. And, and that's one of our primary focuses here at the national level. Um, so within my branch, the Earthquake and Wind Programs branch, we have our grant side of the house, which is me and my colleague, Jonathan Foster. And then we have our tech side of the house, which is composed of architects, civil engineers, structural engineers, and they are working to evaluate older buildings, providing guidance about retrofitting and new construction building codes. And all of that's done to determine and create new codes of how to survive and remain resilient within communities with the structures we have or new structures that are going to be built. And within those buildings, what do we need to do to make sure that you know, those buildings will stay standing after the main shock and after any aftershocks. So it's a lot of information, I know, yeah. and um, we, we have a lot going on here at FEMA, but, um, you know, once we get, you know, our, our data from our partners, we estimate the risks and the annual losses, and then we put in our mitigation plans, we also track this. And we're making sure that we're doing everything we can to increase the successes and help people stay safe. And one of the ways we do this is by tracking the building codes. So we track the building code adoption status for state, local, tribal, and territories across the entire nation. And to do this, we're looking at a few different aspects, um, including natural hazard risks, 
and a community's build, building code adoption. And so this tool is called the Building Codes Adoption Tracking or BCAT. It looks at what jurisdictions have adopted what edition of either the International Building Code or International Residential Code. And it determines whether a jurisdiction is natural hazard resistant, depending on whether it has adopted the current or next most recent codes without having weakened their natural hazard resistant provisions. And, and BCAD or the building code tracking tool is available on FEMA.gov for anybody to review. And all of this information is, but um, that's one of the ways that we're working to help mitigate earthquake risks. That's um really fascinating. And like you covered a lot of information that like I didn't know at all. And like um, there's so much that goes into it. So I found that all really interesting. And uh, thank you for sharing that. I was wondering what you see as the as future trends or challenges in earthquake and wind hazard reduction. And I know you talked a little bit about this, but how are programs adapting to address them? Sure, I'd be happy to answer that. And I'm a little bit of a tech nerd, so I was excited. Uh, I'm excited that you asked this. So one of the trends is actually the growing use of technology and disaster response and preparedness. And this, you know, one of the things that comes to my mind is the development of advanced early warning systems. We're also seeing the use of drones for damage assessments. And uh, there's some, been some integration of artificial intelligence and risk analysis that is proving to be promising. So we're hoping that, you know, in the future, these technological advancements are really going to help us improve our response capabilities and reduce the overall impact of natural disasters. Um, specifically in the earthquake space, there are some really cool new mobile apps to help alert the public of earthquakes. And one of them is managed by the USGS. It's called ShakeAlert, which is an earthquake early warning system that detects significant earthquakes quickly. And then it automatically sends out an alert. I mean this could be seconds before the shaking even occurs, which is just, it blows my mind to think that the app is already predicting and it's gonna send you an alert. And, you know, it, these technologies, of course, you you set them up and you really hope they work, but it, it sometimes it takes a disaster to prove that they do work or they don't. And last year, it actually proved to be invaluable. Um, during Northern California's 6.4 magnitude earthquake, that occurred near Ferndale, the ShakeAlert app was so accurate at detecting the shaking and so fast with the alerts that the app users were given up to 20 seconds to prepare for an earthquake. And, and that's unprecedented. Like if you think about an earthquake and how you would typically know about it is when you feel the shaking. And by that point, it's already occurring. So to have 20 seconds to already you know, drop cover and hold on before it even occurs, it, that is life-saving and a huge success. And along those same lines, you know, the USGS is just building out bigger and better. They're actually working on another app in coordination with the early warning labs that could potentially provide up to 60 seconds of warning. And I am so looking forward to seeing that app roll out and I, I'm really hoping that it works. Um, here at FEMA, one of the new technologies uh, we're working on is actually an adaptation of a successful existing program that we have into more accessible digital formats. So 
this program is the National Earthquake Technical Assistance Program. We love our acronyms, so it's called NETAP. And NETAP is an initiative that we designed to provide specialized training and resources to state and local governments, as well as communities. And it focuses on enhancing the local capacities to plan for and respond to earthquakes. So NETAP includes training in seismic safety, development for community-based mitigation plans, public education campaigns. It, it's really a great program. And the success of it lies in its ability to translate national guidelines and our more technical publications into practical, localized strategies that communities can adopt. Traditionally, NETAP was really only available in classroom settings in person. Yeah, and, and because of that, they, you know, they weren't available on demand. You had to set up this time and travel there. But what we're doing is making it completely accessible on YouTube and for free. And then, of course, you can watch it anytime and anyone can do so. You don't have to have it in person or in a classroom. And so, as you may imagine, the whole NETAP you know, ecosphere is very large, but we have already put on uh, YouTube one of those components. So it's it's one of our popular trainings. It's called the Rapid Visual Screening Tool. And it's based off of our publication P154, Rapid Visual Screening of Buildings for Potential Seismic Hazards. And this learning module includes nine videos. Of course, they're all public and they're free on YouTube. And they are designed to teach anyone, you, me, you know, my mom, anybody can go on there and watch them, how to identify inventory and screen buildings that are potentially hazardous. So I say my mom because she is obsessed with California. She grew up there as a kid and she's always talking about earthquakes. And she actually has been asking me, how can I learn more? You know, she doesn't live there anymore, but she still longs to be back as a surfer girl in California and just wants to remember some of what she went through and learn more about it. And so not just for my mom, but for everyone else, we are looking to adapt, you know, all of the other aspects of NETAP's training into formats like YouTube and making sure that they are accessible. That's like amazing. Yeah, I did not know about NETAP and I'll definitely look it up, but that seems like a really cool program for a lot of people to be able to be very accessible and easy to use so that's pretty amazing and for the shake up um shake out app that you were talking about i actually just downloaded it recently and um i really like i think as you said it's very um a fascinating app and very helpful because it will give you up to like 20 seconds like you said and that is definitely life-saving so those are really cool apps and thank you for sharing that i was wondering in your opinion what um, the most important steps individuals can take for earthquakes and other natural disasters coming up in years. I know you answered this with um, the the apps, the Meetup app, um, and like videos and ShakeOut app, but I was wondering if you had any other steps that individuals could take. Yes, absolutely. Preparing for earthquakes and other natural disasters, it, it is crucial and it, it cannot be understated. To help with this, there are several key steps that someone could take, your listeners could take. And first, it's important to be informed about the types of natural disasters that could occur in your area. 
And I've listened to a few of your podcast episodes and you're doing a really great job of teaching people what disaster risks are and how to prepare. And that really is the first step. So people need to be informed of the types of disasters and their risks, not just where they live, but also where they work, where their kids go to school and where you're planning to go on vacation. You know, one of my colleagues Uh, He traveled to Japan when they had an earthquake there. He wasn't anticipating it, but he was in a very high risk area and it happened. And thankfully he knew what to do. But, you know, that's often something people don't think about is, you know, are you aware of the risks of a place where you travel? FEMA, of course, we've created some excellent tools to help with this. Uh, We have a risk map. We have different other mapping tools. We have some uh, really cool interactive GIS story maps you can use. They're all on FEMA.gov to help with that. That's, yeah. Once, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, that's okay. So the next step is that once you know your risks, you then need to take that information and put it into action. You need to make a plan. And importantly, You not only need to make a plan, but you need to make sure that plan is updated regularly and you're discussing it with your family members or anyone you live with so that they're also aware of it. Some ways to, you know, make your plan or things to include in your plan is a communication strategy. Um, For earthquakes, we just updated the earthquake safety checklist and that could help with your communication strategy. You also need a list of places both in and outside your home where you can go and stay safe during a disaster. We created a document that is helpful for identifying risks in your home. It's called the Earthquake Home Hazard Hunt. And it's an engaging, informative document that helps you identify those things that could become a hazard during an earthquake and how to actually mitigate that hazard. You should also have an evacuation route with the preferably print a hard copy just in case for whatever reason your phone or your iPad or whatnot is is unavailable or runs out of battery, you need to have a printed version. And I really recommend folks also have other preventative measures uh, included in their plan. So for example, uh, one of the plans my husband and I are currently working on is to retrofit our house to meet and exceed the latest building codes. And so we love our house, it's in great condition. But it, it is older. It was built in the 1950s. And some of the structural components, they're, they're not built or meant to sustain, you know, the frequency and intensity of the natural disasters we've been experiencing. We had some flooding in our crawl space and there, you know, we were starting to have some mold issues. And then in addition, some of the you know, support beams are uh, too few to actually support the new design of the house after it was retrofitted by a contractor and changed. And so one of the things in our emergency plan is to actually retrofit our home so that it's safe during disasters. And that's something that I do encourage people to look at. And, you know, then of course, you know, once you have, you know, your risks, you make your plan. The third step is you need to build that kit. So, In your emergency kit, you need to have all the essentials, water, non-perishable food, first aid, any medications you or someone in your household may need, flashlights, batteries. Also wise to have copies of any important documents that you could need. And you should make sure that your kit is accessible and checked regularly so that everything's functional. The last thing you need, and I will say this because I did it to myself last year, is that we had a really bad storm and we lost power. And at the time I was living on a peninsula, my husband and I, and the peninsula's power went out and it was out for several days uh, due to flooding. 
So we went to our emergency kit and all of the batteries and our flashlights were dead. And so we we were kicking ourselves because we're both emergency managers. We're like, man, we know better than this. But it's one of those easy things that, you know, today when the power's on, super easy to just check those flashlights and the batteries, make sure they're good. That simple task is a heck of a lot harder during a disaster when you're trying to do it in the dark. So make sure you have your information at hand, you have your plan and your kit all ready to go before a disaster even happens. Yeah, those are all amazing tips. And I like learned so much from um, and stuff. I, I learned so much from all the tips and strategies you shared. And I found like so many things interesting that I've never, never considered. Like, for example, as you said, like plan and know about the disasters if you're going on vacation in that area. I, I never considered that. I feel like that's really important to do along with everything else you said in preparing a kit. So uh, kind of like similar to that, I was wondering what are common misconceptions in your opinion associated with earthquake preparedness and how can the public be more resilient in preparing for disasters in particular earthquakes? That's a good question. And we do come across some pretty common misconceptions uh, pretty frequently. So one of them is that when you're preparing for an earthquake or, you know, during an earthquake, some folks think that the best way to stay safe is by standing in a doorway or even running outside that by doing either they would be you know safest and and actually that is a misconception and it's not true so standing in a doorway was once advised for older buildings but modern construction has really made this less applicable the best practice now to stay safe is to drop cover and hold on and that's that's anywhere, whether you're inside or outside, you drop to your hands and knees, cover your head and neck with your arms, and if possible, crawl under a sturdy table or a desk, something, you know, the edge of a building, something that you can hold on to while the shaking is occurring, just to keep yourself stable and your other hand firmly protected over your head and your neck. So it, it's really critical and paramount that you don't run anywhere, you don't go, you know, what we want people to know is when you feel the shaking, you just, you drop, don't run to a door frame, don't run outside, just drop cover and hold on. Um, another misconception, and unfortunately this has claimed a lot of lives, is that once the initial shake happens, that the earthquake is over and nothing else is going to happen, that you made it through the worst, you're fine, you can resume, go back to normal. But unfortunately, and sadly, this is not the case and it, it it has been fatal for a lot of people who think that. And what we tell folks is that you should expect aftershocks to occur after the main shock of an earthquake. It should be an expectation. And due to that sudden rapid shaking of the ground, additional natural hazards may happen because of the main shock. And most commonly, that can include fires, floods. If you're in certain areas, that could include a tsunami or avalanches. So it's critical in the event of an earthquake, not just to prepare for that main initial shocks, but the aftershocks and any other natural hazards that can result. So the final one I'll share with you that we hear a lot is that earthquake preparedness is only relevant if you live in California. This is a dangerous myth because the fact is if there are 25 states and territories within the United States that are at high and very high risk for earthquakes, 
and in addition in 11 moderate risk states. So even if you yourself don't live in one of those 25 high or very high risk states or the 11 moderate risk states, you may travel there, you may have family there. You know, you may still need to know how to stay safe during an earthquake, even if it doesn't occur where you live, but where you're visiting, where you work, or where your family lives. Um, yeah, those are amazing tips. And I feel like even um, recently, I only learned this recently about the aftershocks as well, um, after I joined the YPC. But I feel like that is very important to know. And those are incredibly dangerous. And um, that all the other tips that you shared are very important to consider. And yeah, so thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so entered in tailoring earthquake preparedness initiatives to diverse communities. And how do you address these challenges? I am so glad you asked this question. This is a topic that I am passionate about, and it goes to the heart of why I joined FEMA. I'm someone who lives with severe chronic disabilities, and I have a service dog that I rely on, as well as daily life-saving medication. Uh, my service dog, Hugh, is actually sleeping at the bottom of my feet right now, and you may hear him dreaming. But... Because of this, I deeply understand the unique challenges faced by individuals with disabilities before, during, and after disasters. And as a result of this, my top priority at FEMA is making sure that we have pathways to mitigation and preparedness for the whole community, you know, including those with disabilities. And my personal connection to disability drives my commitment to ensuring that our programs are inclusive, but also our policies and making sure that the policies cater to those specific needs. And to be honest, my personal connection to disability really isn't from my own experiences. I, I have not had great experiences during disasters because of it, but the reason I joined FEMA is because of my great uncle David and his experiences during disasters. Um, so my great uncle lived with muscular dystrophy um, it was a condition that really affected his mobility. And the last 10 years of his life, he had to be connected to a ventilator 24-7. Uncle David, he he lived in Florida and he lived on the coast. He was actually, uh, they lived on the Indian River. And, you know, during a disaster, he and his caretakers really had some tough choices, um, especially when there were major hurricanes and evacuation orders were issued. Years ago, the community didn't have the proper accommodations within their emergency shelters for people with disabilities like my uncle David's. And this really left him with two really hard choices. So they either evacuated with the challenge of transporting and managing his medications, all of his mobility equipment, or they fortified the house against the storms. The choice that they you know, had to choose was to fortify the house. But this this wasn't always successful and it, it definitely had its risks. Um, there were times when parts of the house were damaged because of the hurricanes and the house flooded. <laughs> this was really scary uh, because of all the electrical medic, you know, medical equipment that he had to use. Another time they had a, a really bad hurricane that caused them to lose power and they lost power for Gosh, it, it was at least 48 hours, if not more. And 
they had to pull out the generators and they had had a stockpile of fuel for the generators, but because of all the medical equipment he needed, they ran through it really fast. And at one point there wasn't any more gas for the generators. So my family then had to go find gas, drive out into the neighborhood in the community that had just been ravaged by the storm and find it. And it took all day. They couldn't find anything local. And the only place close that they could find gas was four hours away. So an eight hour round trip uh, to come back for the generators. And it's experiences like this and those of my own during disasters that, you know, have been the driving force in my career. And my Uncle David's experiences, my experiences and other folks with disabilities and what they've gone through really underscore the importance of creating disaster plans that consider the unique needs of individuals and disabilities. I am fortunate not to have to be on a ventilator 24-7 like my Uncle David did, but I have other needs. So I have a service animal and I would have to go to a shelter that could accommodate him, just as my Uncle David would have to have a place that could accommodate his ventilator. And that really shows that you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach to being accommodating and having equity and disaster that you need to make sure that your disaster plans are tailored to the unique needs of individuals with disabilities. And that's really my goal at FEMA is that I'm really committed to ensuring that no family faces what we did and that, you know, disaster preparedness is accessible and it's equitable and that people will be safe during a disaster, whether they have a disability or not. Yeah, it's um pretty like a remarkable story and they'll be very powerful. And yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. And I do believe, like you said, it's really important that everyone in the community has equity to disaster preparedness because it's such a life-saving, um, it's a, such a life-saving thing. And I really appreciate that you were that you take steps in FEMA to make sure that everyone has equal access. So as you were talking about like vulnerable populations such as those with limited mobility or access to resources may face unique challenges in disaster preparedness. So um, additionally, how does your program ensure inclusivity in its initiatives and what other steps are taken to address the specific needs of these populations? Absolutely. And I'm glad that you asked this as well, because it does tie into, you know, the stories of my Uncle David and myself and what we're doing as an agency and how we're taking that information. And we're really trying to better our disaster preparedness. Um, so FEMA strategic plan within it, equity is our number one goal. And I am so proud to work for an agency where equity is the number one goal, especially as a person with disability. And the, the agency decided to make this the number one goal because we know that disasters impact people and communities differently. Underserved communities, as well as specific identity groups, often suffer disproportionately from disasters. And because of this, disasters worsen inequities that were already present. So this then just compounds the challenges faced by those communities and increases their risk to future disasters. So for example, during COVID, I I was on a chemotherapy medication and some other life-saving medications. And because of the shortage in the stockpile of medications, I, I couldn't get all of them. Uh, they weren't available. And I, I was told I needed to drive to go get them. But the one medication that I was out of made me so dizzy that I couldn't drive. 
And we are very fortunate not to have another natural hazard in my local area during COVID because if I was without my medication and a natural hazard hit, I would really be at a loss as to how to evacuate, how to properly take care of myself. My ability to be resilient in the face of that disaster, it's hard to even think about. Um, And this is why, you know, instilling equity as foundation is really how we're going to help communities survive. And I am hopeful and positive and know that this agency can really work to break that cycle and we can become more resilient. So talking about our strategic plan, within it, FEMA outlined a few objectives to achieve equity. And the first is cultivate a FEMA that prioritizes and harnesses a diverse workforce, which basically they're requiring FEMA leadership and the workforce to show that there is a big commitment to integrating diversity, equity, and inclusion into you know, FEMA's mission and making sure that our workforce not only represents the nation, but that the voices of our workforce are heard and that these stories come to light and these perspectives are shared so that we can guide the agency. The second objective is to remove barriers to FEMA's programs by creating a people-first approach. And this really goes to what I was talking about of tailoring the disaster plan. So we're requiring that FEMA's resources can be accessed and leveraged by underserved communities in ways that meet their needs, not just ways that meet ours. And we're also making sure that this people-first approach requires decisions about policy and program are routinely informed by how they will impact underserved communities. Not just that we're going to roll out any policy or start any program, that, but that we're first looking at, okay, well, who is this policy and program going to affect? How will it affect them? And what's that impact look like? And what do they have to say about it? And then the last objective to instilling equity is to achieve equitable outcomes for those we served and for those we serve. And this includes directing our resources to eliminate disparities in those outcomes. And what I think is very important is routinely evaluating those programs and policies for disparities. So through these objectives, FEMA will continue its efforts and we are diligently working toward integrating equity as a foundation of our culture and throughout the emergency management community. And I I will put a plug in here to contribute toward this and, you know, trying to make resources accessible, accessible. I was honored to be featured in a FEMA video. It's, it's like a PSA for the drop cover hold on technique specifically for individuals with service animals. This was the first video uh, within or outside FEMA that had a service animal, you know, shown what to do during a drop cover hold on video or during any kind of earthquake safety video. And I was really excited to, you know, show people how to stay safe. And my dog in the video is, uh, he's very engaged. He was sleeping for a while. We have lots of bloopers of that. But um, he does a good job of showing, you know, how to adapt and accommodate my need for him and what he needed to be safe um, in order to, you know, stay as safe as everyone else during an earthquake and still do the same technique, but just have a little bit of an adaptation for what we needed. Um, So that's just an example of things that we're trying to do to make disaster preparedness more accessible and inclusive. 
Yeah, that's incredible. I really want to watch that video and congratulations for like having uh being a part of that. I think that's um remarkable and like really cool and I can't wait to like share it every time like if I go anywhere and teach drop cover and hold to students I definitely want to also showcase that video and I'll um add it in the description below so people have access to it but again I think that's really important and I think it's amazing that you're taking these steps to make it um, make emergency preparedness more inclusive I was wondering for beyond preparedness how does um, your program assists communities in recovery phase following a significant earthquake or wind event and what are the key considerations in rebuilding infrastructure and restoring normalcy? Sure, absolutely. So our overall post-event procedures, um, we have them laid out in the national response framework. We also work with a lot of our key partners, including the United States Geological Survey, USGS, uh, to catalog the data, compile the data, make them publicly available, and then make sure the data is distributed through technology or platforms like Shake Maps and Pager Reports, which are provided to the public and uh, those of us at the federal level to understand the size and scope of an earthquake. It also helps us um, have a repository for immediate data tools and then guide future tools or future platforms, such as one that we've been using a lot here at FEMA called Hazus. And Hazus is designed to provide both an overview of the landscape of risk in any given area, but then also a rapid loss estimation based on the, the modules you're using in it. So one of the ways that we also really work toward that post-event response is through our regional earthquake program managers and our regional response coordination centers. Also, of course, here in DC, our national response coordination center. So if there's an activation, all four of the NEHRP agencies follow um, our plan to coordinate NEHRP post-event or post-earthquake investigations and we're actually in the process of updating this. So that was a great question. We are working on making sure our post-earthquake investigations are super up-to-date and our plan for response coordination is the strongest that it can be. So in addition to those things, we also organize earthquake clearinghouses to identify, you know, the field investigation, help coordinate field investigations. So those could be done by earth scientists, seismologists, engineers, other participating investigators. It the clearinghouses also help you know share the observations that are gathered across you know whether it's federal, state, local. However, it's it's like a one stop shop that includes all of that information. And then we do use that clearinghouse to notify disaster responders through you know our regional response coordination center, national response coordination center, and other things to notify them of any life-saving or life-sustaining info that that would be critical to them both in the field or when we're planning any type of post-event investigation, potentially you know, lessons learned or future building code adaptations, we continuously use all of this information. Yeah, um, that's 
I didn't know about that. So that's really amazing. And it's really cool that you're developing it right now. Um, so I was like kind of switching gears. I was wondering if there are any historical like seismic events that are st still pose mysteries and unanswered questions for researchers. And what lessons can we learn from de delving into the mysteries of the past in terms of predicting and preparing for future earthquakes? This is very timely. And yes, I'm happy to answer this. So while I can't speak specifically from the research perspective, I can talk about the historical part of your question, especially because we have the anniversary of a very significant earthquake fast approaching. Um, this earthquake is the 1994 Earth Northridge earthquake that occurred on January 17th, 1994 at 4.30 a.m., in the San Fernando Valley region of the city of Los Angeles. And it was a magnitude 6.7 blind thrust earthquake. And Northridge and other historical and earthquakes, they really help us to have insights on how we can improve our building practices, ways we can better prepare for emergencies. You know, how do we change our public awareness or communication campaigns to make sure people know their risks sooner and have their plans. You know, it also helps us re-examine our scientific understanding and much more in events like Northridge. They, they don't just go away, you know, for us, especially that this is our whole focus. I mean, now this many years after we still reflect on, okay, what did not go well? What can we still improve upon? we have publications that are built on the data and the science that we found at Northridge and have now figured out, all right, we tried this, it didn't work, here's why. Now we need to do this. We tested it, it's gonna keep us safer. So for example, at Northridge, it, it led us to an improvements in building codes and construction practices, and it really fueled the desire to see structures built or retrofitted to be more earthquake resilient, and resistant, which wasn't as much of a push before Northridge. And, you know, in addition to the push for building codes and to make sure that the buildings were safe, either by new design or retrofitting, it also led to a heightened public awareness. And that really was a huge social push for organizations to then want to teach communities and members of the public about earthquake safety and you know, what to do before the disaster. So the anniversary is coming up uh, 30 years next year. There will be several events, including those online that are free, people can dial into. Even if you can't attend the event or you're busy during one of the webinars, that's okay. This is, these anniversaries and these time markers are good moments to reflect back on what happened. And for us, those are times when we encourage people to say, okay, this is what happened. Let's remember those. Let's, you know, learn from those losses and, and mourn those losses. But then let's also figure out how do we stay safer and what do we need to do now to prepare so that that doesn't happen again? Yeah, um, that is very important. So like, as you said, reflect upon that. And I didn't know that this anniversary was coming up. So we'll definitely be, try, I'll, try to, I'll try to attend the webinar, as you said, and show respect towards 
the, those who face that disaster but at the same time i would all love to also be prepared so i don't find myself in a similar situation so thank you for sharing that i was um understanding like human behavior as you mentioned before is like during crisis is crucial so what insights have you uh, have your programs gained regarding how people react to seismic events and how can this understanding be utilized to improve emergency response strategy you're absolutely right understanding that human behavior piece is is crucial and that's what saves lives and Again, very timely. You you have great questions, Nandika. Uh, a lot of this information was newly released, actually, just a couple of weeks ago in the 2023 National Preparedness Report. And this report outlined some findings that we received through the 2022 National Household Survey on Disaster Preparedness. And that survey, that survey identified how individuals and communities both perceive and prepare for disasters. So the report goes into this, but I'll give you the highlights, which is that what we found through that 2022 survey is that communities identified earthquake risks as one of the most stressful hazards and one of the hazards that's most likely to occur. But interestingly, only 42% of the respondents plan to prepare for earthquakes and some of the other hazards that they mentioned, but they haven't started yet. So further, the National Preparedness Report also outlines that, you know, it's a lack of standardized building code adoption is one of the most significant factors that then compounds the risks and increase the costs from natural disasters. So you have a lot going on here. You have people identifying that earthquakes are incredibly stressful knowing they're they're very likely to occur, but then you have you know, a significant part of the population of 42% that they know they have to plan, but for whatever reason, they haven't done so yet or they haven't started yet. And then you're faced with the fact that, okay, now we have this building code adoption issue and you know that's not just a risk, but it also compounds an increased cost of these natural disasters. And what all this information tells us is, that there's a gap between identifying the risk and preparing for the risk. And as I mentioned to you about the emergency response kits, I mean, the, preparing for a disaster is, is a multi-step process. It's not just being informed. You also have to make a plan. You have to build a kit. And really, I encourage people to also have a fourth step, which is to help your neighbors do the same thing. And in order to stay safe before, during, and after a disaster, you have to have absolutely all three, but I'm gonna say all four because I want you to help your neighbors. You don't, you can't just be aware of the risk. You have to do something about it. So in regard to earthquakes, I encourage your listeners to prepare now before a disaster. One of the ways to do this is to Google the FEMA earthquake safety checklist. Uh, I helped write this and I really like it, but I'm not going to mention it just because of that. Darius also helped a lot. Uh, he's one of our my colleagues that works really hard on all of our publications. But the earthquake safety checklist is a really good document to help everybody accomplish the four steps. These being informed, making a plan, building a kit and helping your neighbors to prepare for an earthquake. For information on building codes, I'd highly recommend your listeners Google the FEMA Building Codes Toolkit, 
which is a guidance tool that we put together and my colleagues in the building sciences branch put together for homeowners and occupants to learn more about building codes and how they can make homes more resilient against disasters. So you had said that you really liked that information about building codes. That would be a good place to start is to Google that building codes toolkit. And oh, sorry, go ahead. That's okay. So um, what I will say is that for us at FEMA, for me personally, resiliency against disasters is the ultimate goal. I mean, it, if you think of it this way, making a plan now before a disaster occurs is like having a life raft on a boat. Hopefully your boat is always smooth sailing. You never have to use it, but just in case you do, you have a, a way to survive. You have your life raft. You will be resilient in that phase of disaster. And your emergency plan and your kit, that's your life raft. So just like a life raft is essential for safety on a boat, your emergency plan and your kit are crucial for navigating the unpredictable waters of disasters. I've been really inspired to see the efforts of a lot of youth across the country, including yourself, who are educating communities about disaster risks and helping them prepare. And it's vital that everyone is not only aware of the risks, but also has access to the necessary resources and tools. And by being prepared, the solid plan, making sure you have your life raft and you know where it is, we can ensure that safety in the face of any disaster, whether it's earthquakes or not, you will be safe and that you will help your family stay safe. I love the analogy that you shared about the life raft. I feel like that's incredibly relevant. And um, I thought um, everything you've mentioned was really important, especially the part about helping your neighbors as well. Uh, I also think that's like very important because it's important, obviously, to engage in your community and make sure everyone around you is safe. Um, so yes, I think it's like, thank you for sharing that. It was very um, like eye-opening for me and especially the statistic you shared with like 42% of people who know that they're ready but aren't ready. Again, like I encourage anyone listening to also get prepared and be prepared, like you said, following the steps. So um, thank you so much for sharing all these incredible tips and stories throughout this podcast episode. I personally learned so many new things today, like whether it was like the building quotes or just the incredibly inspiring stories that you shared. It was a really great pleasure talking to you. And I really, truly appreciate all your support in helping me create this episode today. Thank you, Nandika.